everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning, Mosaic Church. My name is Pastor Jason Montana, the lead pastor, and if you're first time meeting you, welcome. Glad you're joining us both here live and online. Uh, if you've been following us on social media, you're like, hey, I thought we had a new sermon series starting today. We do. Uh, we just didn't change the graphics, so uh, it happens, right? Uh, we are actually going to dig into the book of Revelation, and if you have been around the church world at all at any kind of time, either in your past or maybe you ha- uh, you've been on the journey for a while... The book of Revelation is highly, highly confusing. It's jaw-dropping, and quite honestly, uh, it's even been divisive among believers. This book isn't like a normal book when we read it. It has all these imageries and all these stories and all these things are going on. And so a lot of pastors and teachers shy away from the book of Revelation, and we are mosaics, so of course, now we're going to dive into it because that's how we roll, right? So we're going to dig into a piece of Revelation where we're going to explore seven letters, seven things that Jesus is sending out to seven churches in the uh, area of Asia. And these seven churches have very clear commands of what Jesus is seeing them and what they're doing. And what they are doing, some of it's really good and some of it's really bad. And you're going to find out, man, it sounds like our American church today. That the problem of the church back then, all this 2,000 years ago, are some of the same problems that we have in our modern church. There are also some good things that are happening there that we'll see in our church as well. And and so we're going to dive in. So if you're new to Bible reading or to the book of Revelation, I'm going to say this to you. Yes, we're going to get into some things. It might be a little confusing, and there's some imagery and things that are going on there. But listen to this main story of why we're doing this. This book when you embrace it and learn it and study it, is so encouraging because even though there can be some confusion and you're trying to understand some things, in the end, God wins. If God wins, you win. End of story. So even though there's a lot here, I just want you to have a piece as as you listen, man, God wins in the end. So all these things that are come to pass and everything that's going to happen is now reflected on me because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I get the inheritance of what Jesus gets, not because I've earned it. It's just simply because he has done all the work, died for me, and says I get to be in. And that's the beauty of the book of Revelation. It's written to actually bring peace to believers, as opposed to creating fear. But before we get into this, I want to give you some background into the book. Uh, The book of Revelation is written by the apostle or the disciple John. He's one of the 12. He's one of the big dogs in the 12. And he is one that's in the inner circle of Jesus. So if you've read the gospel, you see Jesus has his 12 disciples. And in there, there's people who follow them as well. There's a larger group. And within the 12, it's kind of broken down into a smaller group. And Jesus gives three disciples specific uh, opportunities to experience things the others did not. And John was one of them. It was John, Peter, and James. So now John is in this inner circle, and he gets to see things that others didn't see. And he becomes one of the authors of the New Testament. He wrote Revelation, as we just said, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. So this is the same John who wrote all of those books. In writing this, 
One of the things that's unique to John is that he, along with Peter and James, got to be part of seeing Jesus on a mountain where he's transfigured. So we read about this in Matthew. Uh, we see in Mark, we see that Jesus goes up on a mountainside and he brings his three boys with him. He goes up on this mountainside and he transfigures, which means his glory is shown and they see Jesus for who he is. And so he's shining like the sun. You see uh, his clothes are like pure white. And all these things are happening. They see Jesus in all of his glory. And John is one of the people who got to see this, which will be significant as we start to read into Revelation. Books written approximately around 95 AD. So John's been around for a while now at this point. And one of the reasons why if you've heard me teaching or one of the belief systems with our disciples, when you watch TV shows or movies, our disciples are always usually old with like white beards. Uh, that couldn't have been happening because here's John's 95 years old, uh, plus the years that he was when he was with Jesus. So many scholars and theologians believe that the disciples would have been rejected pupils of rabbis, uh, and they would have been somewhere in their early to mid-teens. So we would guesstimate maybe around 14, 15, somewhere in there for John when he started following Jesus. So if you really want to put a bee in your bonnet today, you're sitting here today because a bunch of teenagers changed the world. So that's pretty cool, right? Uh, so here we have John. He's now an old man, 95 AD. And what was happening at the time was the persecution of the church was running rampant. Persecution is everywhere. And John was a disciple-making discipler. And so he is traveling and telling everybody he finds about who Jesus is. He's making disciples. And something to note here as well is you notice that John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of his most beloved who walked and lived with Jesus, didn't just sit around reading books. He went and changed the world because Jesus told him to do that. So here, one of the disciples, he says, I've got to go on mission. What I believe creates me for to go on mission, and my mission is to change the world with the gospel. Let everybody know that Jesus has saved them. His, his way of doing this and then the persecution against the Christian church caused him to be exiled. And he's exiled to this little uh, island called Patmos, where he is off by himself, thinking that he can cause no more problems over here. He's 95 years old, probably going to die anyways. And then this book comes to fruition. Now, this book is an apocalyptic book, which means that it's telling about the end of days, what's going to happen when the world ends. At the same time, the genre in here is a prophetic book. So it's giving us prophecy or things are being dictated about the future, the dictated future about the end of the world. That's why people are afraid of this book and why there's, it's so rich and it's so deep and it's so heavy. There's a lot going on because there's prophecy and it's about the end of the world, which like who wants to read about that necessarily, right? But as believers, we get great comfort in knowing that the end of the world is the beginning of Jesus' reign as king. So as a believer, I'm like, this is awesome. If you don't follow Christ, you're like, this sounds terrible. So it really depends which lens you take the book through. Uh, in this book, uh, you might ask the question, how does something like this get written? Does John sit down and start writing and like making stuff up like a fairy tale? How do you get an apocalyptic or a prophetic book like this? And so we believe within our doctrine and what we believe according to the word of God is that the word of God in its entirety is inspired by God, written through human authors 
for the purpose of connection both to a people and a culture, but the words are coming from God. So when you read the Bible, you will see the different authors have different styles, if you will, and they are taking it through their perspective. So if you've ever wondered why is there Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're all kind of telling the same story, but they're kind of a little bit different. It's because they're unique authors giving it through their perspective and experience as a human author, writing down and telling the story and the accounts that God has told them to put down on paper. So here, John is, uh, we'll read here in the, in the scriptures in a few minutes, the Spirit of God comes on John, and he, is, uh, he just starts, wow, like I have to start writing this, and he gets this vision from God. Now, I have never had this happen to me before. Uh, I'm not saying this is something that happens all the time, but we do know in scriptures this does happen, that God does uh, speak through dreams. God speaks through prophecy. God speaks in a lot of different ways, and that still happens today. We just don't know. God does what he wants because he's God. So we don't have to put God in a box But God of the universe said, okay, John, I want you to write down what I'm about to tell you. And so this is, he's completely isolated out on this Patmos, and this book gets written. So he gets caught up in the spirit, told down to write down everything he said. And can you imagine for a second um, of of being the ability, just think about this, to see thousands of years into the future. John gets this vision, and as you read through Revelation, it's thousands and thousands of years into the future. You have to start to wonder, like, did he see everything to its fullest? So let's pretend that this is all happening during our day, right? Let's just pretend that, like, he's coming back right now. So John has a vision of America, the world, in 2023. So as, as Jesus is dictating this and he's seeing these things, he sees uh, he sees iPhones, he sees planes, he sees cars. Remember, they didn't have cars back then, right? He sees modern clothing, he sees the way that we live. He sees all of the huge buildings and cities that we've built up and all this stuff made of steel. Uh, We have written words everywhere on these printing presses and these books. Um, Everyone's got a Bible. Like everything that is in our modern world, what if he saw all that? Like I would super freak out. (laughs) How How do you even process that? In the same way, if we were taken back all those years, we at least have some history to give us some idea of what things were like, but it would totally freak us out. Y'all know some of you are going to die if you don't have a Starbucks once a day, right? So you go all the way back, and now you've got to try to describe what's happening. But because of our history, we have an ability to at least kind of understand. What if we put you 2,000 years into the future and you had to describe that? That's what's happening to John. He is a man. Let's, he is a man. Let's stop thinking of our disciples as some superhero people. They were just men and women like you and me who followed Jesus, heard the word of God, and then they are discipling and telling others, but the spirit of God is what empowers them. The same spirit of God that's in us today when we accept Christ as our savior. So the Holy Spirit is giving John this ability to go through this and explain things. Man, that would be so hard. So let's have a little fun for a second. Let's have fun for a second. Uh, John just walked in the door. Hey, John, how you doing, bud? Um, And I hand him my iPhone. Okay, I'm going to hand John my iPhone. I'll say, John, I want you to write down and describe this thing. Okay, he's never even seen a corded phone, much like most of our younger kids, right? Like, what's what's a corded phone, right? So, you know, the rotor, like that thing, like... Like, how, try to describe that to your grandkids and to your kids, right? Like, we had to actually, like, wait for it to come back, right? 
And so we have to use words. So John would say something like this. Um, it's a flat box that one side glows like the moon in the sky at night, but the other side is as dark as night. And to touch it is as smooth as a rock in a river on, one, on the sides, but the edge is as coarse as perhaps the edge of a blade on the dull side. And at the same time, you touch things and lights change, but yet when I touch something here, somebody talks at me. Music comes, but there's no harp or lyre. There is no one playing any sort of instrument or drums at all, but music comes out of this box. This box can be loud and this box can be soft, and everybody is addicted to this box. <laughs> That's John describing the book of Revelation. He is seeing things he doesn't have in his, his ability because he is a, this is 95 AD, he is a first century man trying to describe instances and references and things that he's seeing. And so you'll see, it looks like this. He's trying to get across what does it look like in his, in his mind. So sometimes when we read Revelation, we read the words, we're like, man, I don't relate to that. That's because you weren't born in the first century. This is totally different genre. And so when we read any scripture at any time to do proper work with the scripture, we need to do the work of not putting our modern Western eyes on something. We need to do the work of putting our Eastern first century learned eyes on something to the best of our ability. Advantage us because we have history. Disadvantage John. He has no idea what's going on. So if he is seeing things, and let's say he's seeing us in the year 3000 perhaps, and he's describing things, and we, all this stuff is going on, it's going to blow his mind, and he's using the best he can to describe what's happening. Okay? So now that we know that, we're going to look at our scripture. We're going to start our scripture with Revelation chapter 1. And what's going to happen in this, it's called the seven words to the churches. The seven words that we're going to look at are Jesus has a direct conversation to each of the seven churches, and he wants to tell them what he sees and what's happening with him. So you're going to hear some imagery in this as we go through it. But through this whole thing, we start out, John starts writing about Jesus. Everything starts with Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, and everything is through Jesus. So Revelation chapter 1 is the beginning here. We'll have the screen behind you. Uh, those who did slides today told me they're really happy I did an entire chapter. So Revelation <laughs> chapter 1. That's okay. They have the wrong backgrounds. That's on them. Uh, Revelation <laughs> chapter 1. We'll start with verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He starts out this passage with giving an opening like we would just say, hey, what's good, right? So he says, hey, 
here I am, and I'm not just writing this letter. Christ has come to me, and this is the one who is the one who has saved us, the one who is the king. This is Jesus. Our Jesus has a message for you, and I'm here to tell you about it. So greetings, friends, right? This is how this letter begins. He moves on. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand, my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John starts out this letter by saying, okay, this is Jesus, and then he gives his encounter with Jesus. And his encounter, as he hears this voice booming behind him like a trumpet that says, hey, I want you to write this down for the churches, he turns around and he sees this image, glowing white, this golden sash holding these stars and there's lampstands around him. And he speaks like rushing water. One of the uh, things I love, I'm a nature guy, and where I uh, get up north, there's this amazing river. And this river, as it comes through, has this gorgeous way into the, the rock side. And the noise and the sound of that river is deafening. If you've ever been around those before, it is so loud. And what I find so interesting about rushing waters is it's not only loud, it's continuous. There is no break. Like when there's waves, like smash, smash, you know, like there's, the waves come and there's a little bit of a, a lull. Rushing waters of a river is like this powerful, uncontrolled noise that you have nothing, you can't stop this thing from coming. And so when he says a voice like this rushing waters, I'm wondering like, man, this must have been scary. Now he sees, this is Jesus, he is completely whited out, right? So he is white on top, white all the way through. He's got this, looks like a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes are blazing like a fire. Now, I don't know what that means, because again, John's trying to describe something, but I see in this a tenacity, a fierceness, a, like a powerful king, right? And so he is just 
awe-inspiring. It is so terrifying that John, who is one of Jesus's best friends, falls on the ground dead. Like, I just wham, out cold. I would faint. I don't know if he fainted or not, but he sees this and he drops to the ground as if dead. This is so terrifying because now Jesus is showing who he is. I am the, I am the one, the first, the last. I am the Lord God. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I've got the keys to death and to Hades. This is me now, and this is not the Jesus you saw on earth. This is the Jesus who is. The one you saw on earth had the human form on it. But John, I was up on that mountain, and you saw some of this before, didn't you? Because remember, John was on the mountain. And so I wonder, did John have any recognition at this point? Or was he just terrified? Like, hey, Jesus, dead. You know, like just fall down. But he doesn't say anything because he can't even speak at the glory and the mastery and the wondery of our Lord God that it is so awe-inspiring that all he can do is literally just fall prone, terrified. I think we would too. And this is the part of Jesus that says, dude, Jesus is so cool. He takes his hand. He's like, don't be afraid. Isn't that just a loving thing to do? I just, I just see it so kind, so loving that he puts his hand on John. John is a filthy sinner like you and I. Like we don't deserve anything good. John is not better or worse than you. He is a guy just like you and I who gave his life to Christ and he is saved by the same grace you and I have. And he puts his hand on him and says, John, don't be afraid. It's me. I wonder if it clicked. <laughs> Did John say, ah, like, or was he just still so blown away by what's happening and what all the noise and the rushing sound and the Lord speaking and his glory blazing before him? What did he say? He doesn't say anything at that point. It's Jesus speaking, but I love that. Do not be afraid. It's me. I'm the first and last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the living one. I was dead. Now I'm alive. It's me, John. It's Jesus. What a comforting thought as I sit and I was studying and reading that in all of his glory, like he doesn't have to talk to us. Who are we? We're nobody, but he sees us. And he says, do not be afraid. So now we get all this imagery that's happening. Uh, but before we get into the specifics of the churches, we got to understand what's happening. Because some of our descriptions are extremely straightforward. Uh, we said he's the firstborn of the dead. He's a faithful witness. He's a ruler of the kings on earth. But some are cryptic, like his hair and his eyes and his bronze feet, bronze feet and this mouth coming out. And the, this is the key to this. And there's lots of things we could go into and we could geek on this all day, but I want you to get the bigger message of what's being said here. This is the big overarching image. So all of you detailed people are like, keep going. I'm like, no, I got to move on. So here's the, big, here's the big, huge image. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not a figure of a joke. Jesus is not something willy-nilly. This Jesus is the God of the universe, and he still puts his hand and says, John, don't be afraid. This is our king. And so this is Jesus is so important to understand because as we move into the letters to the churches, the letters to the churches say, you need to remember this guy. This is who you're going through everything for because 
We're at 95 AD. I wonder if this is now second-gen Christians. Christians have been moved on. This might be even third-gen Christians at this time, which means the first converts, some of them are starting to die off now. We assume a lot have moved on. And now we've got second-gen to third-gen. The new generations of Christians are coming, and these churches are being built. And now John has this opportunity to speak through the Lord, and Jesus says, remember, this is who I am. I'm this powerful, amazing, all-encompassing, loving God, and I'm here with you. John, you walked with me, and look at how terrified you are. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we get to see him face to face. So before they move into any of the churches, the churches, these letters to these churches have to be reminded who Jesus is. And so before I get into the book, into the letter to Ephesus, I just want you to pause for a second. How do you picture your Jesus? What is he in your life? Have you forgotten who he really is? And maybe, maybe you've become a little too complacent with your faith walk, like you just assume he'll be there. Is your Jesus a genie in the bottle that you rub a lamp when things are bad? Okay, can you give me these seven things that I need right now? And then things are good, you forget about them. Is your Jesus one in which you can't wait in the morning to just get to that time of prayer and say, Jesus, I got it. I'm here, let's talk. And you have that relationship with him and you love him because the beginning of Revelation starts with all of us as believers, you need to first remember who I am. So remember who he is today. And as we get into the details of Ephesus and Smyrna and all these other churches, remember, we'll always go back, remember who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is unmatched. There's no one like him. He is all powerful, but at the same time is the most loving, caring, amazing amazing Jesus, that he would love us when we don't deserve it. So Jesus is standing among these lampstands. He says, okay, I am among my church. So he is sitting there with these seven churches. He is among his church, and they each represent each of the churches we're going to talk about. He is here, and he's with them, and he's speaking to the angel of or the messenger of these churches. So the messenger of the churches, he's saying, here's the deal. You guys are doing some things well, you're not doing some things well, but the key is, is that you have to remember who that I am. Matthew Emerson uh, states in the book, Between the Cross and the Throne, the book of Revelation, he says this, John's vision begins with the image of the exalted Christ, who stands gloriously victorious in the midst of his churches. Jesus, who has already conquered Satan through his death and resurrection, then exhorts each of the seven churches that comprised John's audience to stand firm against all opposition, both spiritual and physical. So John has this opportunity to speak, and Jesus is saying, I've won. Keep fighting. I've won. Because remember, persecution was running rampant at this time. Christians were being offed and killed and exiled. It was a really hard time to be a follower of Christ. And so he gives this message to encourage them to say, I know it's hard, but trust me, I win. So now that we're here, we're going to dig into our passage for today. Revelation 2, chapter 1 to 7. This is to the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name 
and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Neosolatans, which I also hate. I also, but he said it, I hate the word. <laughs> Whoever has ears, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life who is in the paradise of God. Here we have this church, and Jesus says, I know what you're doing. You are killing it. You are doing an amazing job, church in Ephesus. I see you. You are working so hard. You're persevering through trials. You're holding firm. You are seeing people, and people are coming, oh, I've got a word from the Lord. You're testing the teachers and saying, you're not teaching the right gospel, the correct gospel, the correct doctrine. You're not teaching that. You are doing, you get them out. You get rid of the wicked. You have no tolerance for sin. But here's the thing I hold against you. You have stopped loving. You've stopped loving. Now, theologians have debated what exactly that is. Um, Again, details that we could go down rabbit trails and do a whole series on that. So details, people, I'm sorry. But I'm going to give you the big idea again. There's a love that's lost. Most theologians would say, is that they've become strictly religious and that they're going through the actions of religion, so therefore their actions and their work is a way of saying, see, God, we love you for how hard we work. But they don't love him. Their love for him, theologians would then debate, means that they've lost their love of people. So now, because they've lost love of God, remember God said, love God, love others, the love of God and people are intertwined in our faith journey. So the loss of love of God and the loss of love of people, in the beginning, this church was sharing the gospel. Their people were coming to Christ. They're loving, loving, loving. They worship God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we are instructed to by our Lord and Savior Jesus. They are loving first. But now, all this time later, what they are loving is inward-focused, we're doing everything right, doctrine. We teach the right stuff. We're doing the right stuff. We're standing firm. But it's like a business. They lost their love. And for us today, depending on your background and your story, there could be your background or story. It could be, man, I can so relate. Like, I was like super, we use the word religious. That guy is religious. In our modern wor- world and word, that means that this person practices and does a lot of religious things. So is it possible to be, quote-unquote, highly religious and not love God? According to this passage, yes. In this passage, you can be doing everything right. You can be watching all the right shows, listening to all the right music. You can be reading all the right books. You can study the Bible 24-7. You could only listen to Caleb, ah, sing the songs every day. You could do all of the religious things, but if you don't love God... God's like, you're doing anything right, but I'm about to take your lampstand because it's about loving me, because loving God fuels and motivates why I do those things. When you flip them, we're not living in God's will. We're not doing what he's asked us to do. It doesn't make any sense. We need to love God first, and our love for God is going to equal our love of people. And now as we love God and love people, 
our actions now reflect that in how we live our life and how we practice our, quote-unquote, religion or our actions. So in this church, there's two big theological words I'm going to teach you today. Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, or something that's orthodox, is correct teaching. So when you have an orthodox teaching, is it agreed upon that this is correct doctrine and correct theology in which we're going to teach and preach out of? So they were adamant about that. They're kicking out false teachers. People weren't saying the right thing. Like, you can't speak falsehoods here. They were very orthodox. What they weren't was orthopraxy, which means the actual practice or action of what they believed. Their orthodoxy did not match their orthopraxy, and so now you have highly religious people doing things without the actual action and love of God and love of people. And so what they were doing wasn't matching what they said they believed. Instead, they were just doing. And I wonder why. I wonder why we do that. I wonder, I wonder what motivates us to think, if I come to church on Sunday, God's going to be less mad at me today. I wonder what makes us think, hey, I better, I better read my Bible or bad things are going to happen or I won't have God's blessing. And we start to make up all these stories in our head that if I do religious things, then God's happy with me. But the truth is your orthodoxy uh, has to match your orthopraxy. And so these two together, what you know and what you do should equal your love of God. What you do and what you know should mean your love of God. Let me say that again. What you know and what you do, that's how you love. Because those two together, as I love God, I love others, I love the word I'm teaching, now as I'm doing ministry or I'm sharing the gospel, I'm not doing it to be right, I'm doing it because I love God. So let's just, once again, my favorite target to shoot at is our love of social media and Christians. Christians on social media are one of the most embarrassing things, I think, about our faith journey right now in our current time. As Christians will use social media to argue, blast, shoot, blow up, slam, swear at, whatever. I mean, it is just a minefield for their orthodoxy. They will argue and fight, and maybe you're part of that. If you're part of that, two words, stop it. I'm sorry. I'm so tired of saying I'm sorry for people who do this because we're fighting with our orthodoxy. Now, orthodox teaching is absolutely essential. You guys know that. I'm not, I'm, well, maybe you don't. I'm saying it again. We are purposely aligned with the Christian Missionary Alliance, so we are part of a larger family and group of people in which nothing that we teach can shy away from this larger group of our orthodox doctrine. It's what we believe to our core. But if I say I love Jesus and I say I want to take his mission, but we as a church are not loving our community, helping others, making disciples that make disciples, we're going to turn into the church of Ephesus. And that's why when I get so fired up at times, if you guys are watching me for the first time, I'm, I had coffee. I'm really fired up today. Um, I am telling you, the, the reason why I struggle so much as a pastor is I've lived too many Christian worlds in with orthodoxy is greater than orthopraxy, and then these two are split, and we look like the church of Ephesus. I've seen great, well-meaning, loving Christians do and say things not loving. And if we keep doing this, my friends, I'm telling you, we're blowing it to love our community well so that the gospel can be spoken. And Brother John, we can only assume, because if those who know the Brother John, he was the loving 
disciple. Like he's love, love, love. He was all about love, which means this first church probably shook him a little bit because when you read his books, he's always about how we need to love others because Christ loved us. So when you hear this church is not really loving well, that's a big red flag, huge red flag. And so John is begging us. We can read through these words of John and Jesus today. You have to love more or equal to than what you say you believe. Because if you say you believe something but do nothing with it, do you really believe it? That's the question. If I say God loves me and God loves all people, yet I'm, I do everything right but I don't love, I'm actually backpedaling. I don't make any sense. So in this modern Christian world, my word, the social media, the, the comments we say, we're fighting over the wrong things. Let's do this. Let's fight over who loves our community and loves our neighbors more. Let's fight over that one for a while. I want to see a thread. Well, I love my community more than you do. Because, like, you know what? It'd be refreshing for once. <laughs> it would be refreshing to read something that says, I've been in the community loving people. I, this person came to the Lord. I'm doing these things. And like, man, this is so great. Because you can't argue it. All you're going to do is celebrate love. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are people who probably argue that too. But, but we don't argue that portion of it. We, we say the words, this is so weird. We say the word, that's my private faith. If you believe that you have a private faith, then you've never read the true Bible because your faith is not private. Your faith transforms you to transform the world. So John is living out the mission Jesus gave him, but somewhere in the last 2,000 years, we turn into knowing a lot of things and being really smart, but not really loving. So in a lot of ways, the American church is Ephesus. We've lost our way. We've lost our, our, we've lost our vision. We've lost our, what the master told us to do. The master said, learn and understand and grow that you can then learn and teach and transform other people. That is your job as a follower of me, is that you are meant to go change the world. This last couple of weeks, uh, I've been processing a lot of things. been processing a lot of things. Um, not only am I ang an angry Gen Xer, just by nature, um, I've just been processing the state of the American church and the state of Mosaic. I've been praying, I've been thinking, and I've just been frustrated. I'm like, God, why, why do I feel this, like, this, uh, this holy discontent in my tummy? And I sat down, and something like a light bulb went off for me. Um, I, did not, I was not at Patmos, and I didn't see lampstands. That's how it happened. But a light bulb went off for me, and I started praying over this. And I'm like, I think in 2024, we need to change, what, change our, the way we're thinking. In 2024, I think God's calling us to a vision that is actually a little scary in a good way. I think in 2024, God's calling to something bigger than Mosaic ever dreamed. And I sat down, and I started processing with some people like, Bro, that is so awesome. And I'm starting to dream and think, what if for 2024, our church family changed everything here to change everything out there? What if a church family where you are today took your faith journey, turned it, your private faith into a public faith, and we started to change the world? Now, it's going to take time. It's going to take training. It's going to take a lot of work because we have to have orthodoxy with orthopraxy. And so I started to write stuff, and I'm just like scribbling, and I got like, it's like, like my mind exploded, right? I have all this stuff in different directions. And I cannot wait to reveal to you what this is going to be. It's going to be unbelievable. I'm not telling you today. 
this is what I'll say to you. I don't want us to be Ephesus. I don't want Jesus to look at us and say, Jason, you guys have done a lot of good things. In fact, you've actually served your community well, but you forgot about loving me because it all stems to loving him. We can do all the right things, guys. We can even love other people well, but if we're not doing it because we love him, we're going to be Ephesus in which Jesus says, I'm sorry, I'm going to remove you out of this equation. And we're out. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. Because the promise on the back half of his amazing, uh, amazing uh, message to them is that the, for those who are victorious, you get to eat from the tree of life. For those who are victorious, you get paradise. Which means we have to love. Love is the key of our master and our Lord God. Because love is what put Jesus to the cross. Love is the answer for everything. Love is the thread that ties everything together. So when there is not love, it doesn't work with our God because God is love. And so as I process for 2024, that thought and that theme was driving so deep into my heart. It's like, what does it look like us for us to break out of what this mold of essentially the Ephesian church that American church has put us in? We break out of this church Our love for God is so contagious that our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy together come together, and maybe we'd be honored someday in our life to be persecuted truly for our faith. I'm not asking us to, but you know the honor that John sat there, that he was because of his faith walk? He was there. He got to be there, and Jesus speaks to him, and he gets these opportunities, and the opportunity that he has to be able to share the faith— it is not a chore. It's an absolute pleasure and joy. And for those who know, you know what I'm talking about. We get to say the name of Jesus. I get to talk about my faith pretty much daily in the outside world. Almost every day I'm saying something because I just want it. It's who I am. It's not like I turn on Jesus Jason and non-Jesus Jason. The two are combined. It's the same dude. I'm talking about one thing and I'll flip to it all because of my faith. And it's just a natural, just who I am. I am a disciple. I don't think of myself as different from John. He just is like my great, 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 great discipler, right? Like he's way down the line. And there's been generations of disciplers that have come along, and I'm in his lineage. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? You ever think about that? You could be in the lineage of one of the, sorry, that's a side note. But that'd be kind of cool. Like I'm with Peter, right? Because he's angry like me. But you think about the fact that you get to say the name of Jesus, but do you love him? Do you love him? Church, let's never forget our first love. For those who have been saved for a long time, it's really easy to forget your first love. It's easy to forget how much you were forgiven. For those who are, just came to Christ or more, more recently, like the forgiveness that's on you and your faith journey of this whole new thing of like what it means to be forgiven of all your sins. But it doesn't matter if you're new or old, long time, short time, we are called to the same thing, love. We must never stop loving God or the lampstand's going to be removed from us. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.